0: It's a great privilege to be with you this morning. Um, It's uh, been my privilege to be involved um, behind the scenes a bit with All Saints over the years and to now have the privilege to be able to come and to bring God's Word to all of you uh, that I have prayed for. Uh, Your senior pastor and I have been friends for many years, and um, it's a privilege. We're going to look this morning... um, at some of uh, the words that God gives us in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 and then into the first part of chapter 4. Uh, You'll find it written there uh, in your bulletin, and so let me read this, and then I'll pray. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life, or death, or the present, or the future, say it with me, all are yours. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then... Each one will receive his commendation from God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Father, it is most common for us to root our identity in something, in something that's made, something that we've made most of the time, something we are, something that we've done, something that we're not, and yet all of that is frail. It crushes in our hands. And you offer us something so wonderfully better than that. Would you give us a taste of that as we hear your servant, Paul's testimony? And would you lead us towards it? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm uh, Hamilton, not the musical. Did that come to Boise? Did you hear about that here? Um. There's a lot I could say about Hamilton. I would say, um, it, it was, uh, interestingly enough, it was our presbytery clerk that put me onto Hamilton. He sent me a text one night and said, you should buy Hamilton. And I don't buy music. That's not really me. But for some bizarre reason, I listened to what he said. And the Lord opened up my heart in a way that was completely surprising. through a play, a musical written by a pagan. Hamilton is interesting for a number of different reasons. Um, The inner psychology of the main characters is fascinating to me. The way that they think about themselves and they process the lives that they've had and the lives that they're living and what animates them, what drives them, what fears they have. It's fascinating, Alexander Hamilton. There's three words uh, that are collected by Lin Manuel Miranda based on the biography by Ron Chernow. Three words that go all through the entire musical: bastard, orphan, immigrant. Bastard, orphan, immigrant. He's haunted by those three words that say to him who he is and who he's not. Let three words run through your minds in a similar way—words that were said by uh, a parent, a relative, a sibling. A friend who ghosted you. The words you say to yourself. That you call yourself. That you name yourself. For Hamilton, bastard, orphan, immigrant is what he wanted to run away from. Which is why it was so attractive. uh, Using another line from the play. That in New York... You can be a new man. Hear the depth of that. In New York, you can be a new man. You can leave behind that lousy identity that you had, and you can make yourself to be somebody brand new. Now, none of you students who came from rural areas to Boise wanted to find something new here in the city, right? Hamilton's um, fascinating. If you get the chance to read the big biography, you should. Uh, he had prodigious achievements. The whole of Western banking is based on what Hamilton created from scratch. The Coast Guard, the New York Post. You could go on and on. But you'd be mistaken if you thought that his achievements were his goal. They were not. They were a means to an end. They were a way to get from here, from, from bastard orphan immigrant to there, which is some stable sense of who I am that I can live with. That's what he was really after. And without a firm identity in Christ, you might go after achievements. You might go after sin. You might keep from certain things. Trying to show yourself to be righteous, different. If you know the story of Hamilton's life, you'll know that he fell into a lot of sin. He was a person just like us, just like you and me. But he fell into a lot of sin because he was trying to find an identity. And you and I have no idea what we're capable of as we work for an identity. I want you to remember that phrase. I'm going to come back to it. Work for an identity. That's what Hamilton was doing. My uh, Brian accurately put that part of what I do is I come and I I help churches. And one of the things um, that is axiomatic of people who do what I do is that a healthy church... Has healthy congregants. Pretty easy. What's a healthy congregant? A healthy congregant is one who has a firm identity in Christ that serves as the foundation of life and relationships and ministry. A healthy congregant is one who has a firm identity in Christ that serves as the foundation of life and relationships and ministry. Identity in Christ, building identity in Christ, is the consuming goal of the Apostle Paul. If you look at all of Paul's letters, they follow the same pattern. Y'all are messed up. I know how you're messed up. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to preach the gospel again to you. So that you'll understand the gospel and facets of the gospel in the way that you need in light of how you're messed up. So I'm going to re-preach the gospel to you. I'm going to build up your identity in Christ and I'm going to tell you, you don't have to live that way anymore because of what you already have in Jesus. Building identity in Christ is the consuming goal of the apostle Paul. It's, it's what identity in Christ is what underlies the inner psychology of Paul. An inner psychology that is so different than Alexander Hamilton's that you wonder if they're even the same species. Well, how do we know Paul's inner psychology? Well, he tells us. He tells us what his inner psychology is. He tells us what his internal narrative is like. What he speaks to himself. He tells us. And God gives us that for our good. And so that's why we're going to look at this text today. Uh, This text, interestingly, works well from bottom to top. And so we're going to go first down to verse 5 of chapter 4, where we're going to find uh, the problem. If you're a note taker, um, we're going to... It's a three-point sermon. I'm a Presbyterian pastor. Come on. It's a three-point sermon. uh, And the first thing we're going to do is we're going to see creaturely judgment as the problem. Uh, Some of you, if you have read uh, the little um, kind of expanded sermon by Tim Kelworth called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, if you haven't read it, you ought to read it, every single one of you, and I mean that, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness, you will find some parallels between what I say and that uh, sermon because my life has been marked so much by it. Well, what's the problem? The problem is creaturely judgment. Look with me down at verse five in your text. There, God, through Paul says, Therefore, do not pronounce judgments. Now we have to take this carefully. You look at Paul's letters, he confronts a lot. So this isn't just kind of let like, well see That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is um, there's a difference between what you can see and what you can't see. This is about judging motives, hearts, character. And notice that it's pronouncing judgment before the time. There will be a time when it's going to happen. When when scarily all things will be revealed. The word here is that you do not pronounce judgment before the time. Well, what's that time? It's before the Lord comes, when he comes back. When all things are put right. Then... The Lord will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and he will disclose the purposes of the heart. We don't do that. We we can't disclose purposes of the heart. We think we can, but we can't. But the Lord will. And when the Lord returns, then. Now these next two words are extraordinarily important. Important enough to, to pause. Then. Each one. I'm going to pull my phone out and look up a text. If you have a regular Bible, not just the text that's in there, I want you to turn with me to the book of Revelation. And I want you to go to chapter 2 and see if I wrote it right in my notes. Yeah. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 17. This is amongst the letters to the churches which are fascinating all in their own. But I want you to hear something here. Revelation 2.17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, the one who sticks with Jesus, the one who keeps believing the gospel and living in light of it. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now listen to this. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone. That no one knows except the one who receives it. I want you to feel the depth of that. I asked you a little bit earlier to think about three words that have been spoken over you. Three identity words. Do you know what this says? This says God has a pet name for you. God has a pet name for you. A name that is only between him and you. That's how individually God relates to us. He counts up the pain and none is missed. He relates one to one with each one of his children. Enough that he has a pet name for you. That's what this says: that each one, to go back to First Corinthians, each one will receive his commendation from God. Now, why is this important? Much of what we do as we're working for an identity is trying to get the commendation now. Commendation from me, commendation from you. We want it now, thank you very much. But we must be content to not seek it now. Not commendation from ourselves, not commendation from others. Encourage others for sure, Paul does a bunch of that. But there's a waiting. It's a good waiting. It's a waiting that's worth it. When the Lord comes back, each one will receive his commendation from God. But we're impatient. We feel this compulsiveness to build an identity all by ourselves now and to work for one. And one of our tools as we build an identity is judgment. It's creaturely judgment. That's the distinction here that you're given. It's the judgment of creatures versus the judgment of the creator. The one who knows all versus people who know really marvelously little. See, we don't have the ability to see the heart. So when we presume to judge, we proudly judge in darkness, assuming what we know, what we couldn't possibly know. And so the command here is to not arrogate to ourselves God's prerogative to judge men's hearts. But this also revolves around ourselves, too. See, pride works two ways. In pride, we can knock down others. We can critique them in our minds, in our hearts. And sometimes we can be foolish enough to do it with our words. And we can critique and judge and knock down people around us. Why? Because we're trying to feel okay about ourselves. And if I can knock you down, I can feel okay about me. Because you're lower. And that means I'm higher. But we can also puff ourselves up. We can judge ourselves worthy and deserving. We can commend ourselves before the time when God will make that ultimate evaluation. How do you avoid that? Well, let's move up in our text and take a second point, which is that you should not fall for self-justification. Look with me the second half uh, of verse 3, the very end there. He says, in fact, I do not even judge myself. I wish I could say that about me. I am a constant critic of myself. It's horrible. It's not a way I would like to live. But it is a way that I live. But I don't want it. Because it's horrible. Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I don't judge myself superior." I'm not self-aggrandizing, but he also doesn't lower himself too much, but appropriately. We go on in verse 4, for I'm not aware of anything against myself. Now, that's not Paul saying that I don't think I'm a sinner, because other places he says. I, I'm the chief of sinners, the apostle, chief of sinners. But shouldn't we all be able to say that? So what is he saying? I'm not aware of anything against myself. I think the idea of what I think he's trying to say is that I'm repentant and I'm reconciled. I'm repentant of the sin that I know of and I'm asking the Holy Spirit to show me my sin. I'm assuming you do that, right? Ask the Holy Spirit, show me my sin and repent of it. That's why we do confession services. But that's every day for the Christian. It's a lifestyle of repentance and faith. Paul says, I'm repentant and I'm reconciled. I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I think he knew he had hidden faults. He wasn't self-justifying. He says, it is the Lord who judges me. He committed himself wholly to the Lord. He put himself in the Lord's hands. Paul refused to be a determiner of his own righteousness, his own acquitting. In the words of the Heidelberg Catechism, first question and answer, he put himself into the hands of his faithful Savior. Have you done that? Put yourself in the hands of your faithful Savior. Now, you might hesitate to do that. Maybe you're still exploring Christianity. This is new kinds of things to think about, that's good. I'm glad you're here to hear this and to see that this Bible that Christians believe touches down in the very recesses of our heart the things that we struggle with day by day. That's why a text like this is so important. Now you might struggle, you might wonder, can I, can I trust if I put myself in the hands of Jesus that that, that will be okay? And it might be hard to do that unless you understand that Jesus solves both of our main problems. See, human beings have two problems before God. God has said, do these things, and we've, got, we've said, hmm, maybe, eh, maybe not. And he said, don't do these things, and we've gone, hmm, but I like some of those things, so I think I'll do some of those. And that produces two problems, right? We're supposed to have done all these things that God has said to do, and we haven't. And there's all these things that God has said don't do, and, well, we've done some of them, and we've blown it. And Jesus comes along, and in our place, he lives a perfect life. Do you ever wonder why Jesus just didn't die as a baby? And if it's just about his death on the cross and resurrection, he could have died as a baby. But he doesn't. He lives a full life. He grows up through childhood. He grows up through adolescence. He grows up uh, as a young person with siblings and parents and um, making his way in the world and being around real people and facing all of the stress and struggles that you do. And he did it perfectly without ever once sinning and doing everything that his father asked him to do. And he did it because he was righteous, but he was there doing it for you. So that before the Father, you could have the record of Jesus' righteousness. Then instead of my stinky record and your stinky record, what you have is the record of Jesus. As though you had never sinned and as though you had done perfectly everything that God expected of you. So Jesus comes and lives perfectly in your place. And then he dies. And he dies taking the punishment for sin. But not sin he did. Sin I did. Sin you did. Sin we did. And he dies bearing the wrath that God righteously has towards sin. And thus towards sinners. And all that wrath is poured out. It's exhausted on Jesus to where there's no more wrath for those who will hide themselves in Jesus and say, I need your record. I need your death. I turn from my own ways of trying to live and save myself and somehow create an identity for myself. And I hide myself in you. I entrust myself to you. I place myself into your hands, faithful Savior Jesus. That's what Paul's saying is He did. Have you? You should. Maybe you've lived for a Christian for a long time and you're kind of like, I'm so glad you did that part, preacher. Heard that a million times. Thanks. Remember that these are the words of the Apostle Paul, who planted churches and wrote inspired letters, who lived the struggling life for the believer. And he was telling you what it was like for him. That this was the pattern of his repentance and faith daily lifestyle. He's telling you what that is. Paul says, I reject self-justification. For justification through Jesus. When you judge yourself or others. What you're doing is you're you're chucking out justification through Jesus. And you're saying. Oh, I can get this done. But it's a trap. Because you know you can't. Even though you try. What God's trying to say is. Hey reject that. You reject self-justification when you throw yourself anew on God's mercy each day. And when you do that, you can then third feel the freedom of identity in Christ. Let's look at the first um, couple of verses of chapter 4. Remember the context here, and you get this from what we read earlier up in chapter 3. The context in Corinthians, if you've read this in 1 Corinthians, is uh, both... um, uh, Paul and Apollos and Cephas, they'd all had a role. They'd all been preachers like me that had come through. And different people had allied themselves and said, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas. Now, why do we do that? I should have worn a Boise State t-shirt. Why do we do that? I'm of Boise State. It's an identity. We ally ourselves To something, because we think in so doing, or someone, we think in so doing, a political party, a a figure, a preacher, a church, that we think that somehow, if we ally ourselves to something, that we can, we can receive from that some stable sense of who we are. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. And Paul comes along and he goes, eh, you're thinking about this all wrong. Let me tell you how you should think about this. This is how you should regard us. Verse 1, chapter 4. The apostles, what are we? We're servants of Christ. Servants of Christ. Stewards of the mysteries of God, of the gospel, and other now revealed mysteries that we have in the New Testament that speak of Christ. That's who we are. We're servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. That's what Paul's endeavor was was to be trustworthy with these gospel mysteries that he'd been given. Paul comes in verse three and he begins, he says, This is how I think about myself and how you should think of this is how I think about myself, and this is how you should think about me. And let me tell you what I think about you. Let me tell you what I think about you. It's a very small thing. It's a very small thing. That I be judged by you. That's an amazing I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that this morning. It's a very small thing. This is hopeful. This is hopeful. This is Paul being honest. This is gospel saturated Paul. This is Paul full of identity in Christ saying, although it could be tempting to me to try and get an identity from you being allied to me as an individual. That's all wrong. That's all messed up. In fact, for me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. And really, by any human court. That this word, every time you preach a sermon, I've preached a sermon several times, different things stand out to you. And at least this morning, that phrase, human court, Fascinated me. How is it that you go into a setting, you go into a classroom, you go into a, a meeting, you go into a church service, and it's all, you're always in court? You're always trying to find out Am I okay? What's the judgment? What's the judgment of me? What's the judgment of you of me? We're always back in the courtroom. Paul goes Eh. You know what? It's a small thing. I'm not judged by you. I don't even judge myself. It's pretty corrosive, though, when you live in an environment where it's judgment all the time. Judgment always reveals that the judger does not have a firm identity in Christ. And that they feel a great need to pass judgment on others to feel okay about themselves. Paul says, I'm free of that. I don't need that. How? He had a different identity. An identity that wasn't built on his evaluation of himself or your evaluation of him, of me. That wasn't the way that he thought about it. What was his identity? Servants of Christ, stewards of the gospel mysteries of God. Notice how those identities that Paul speaks don't revolve around him. If you were to take these words, for example, over yourself. Not the words that have been spoken over you. But these words. Notice how these identity words don't revolve around me. They don't revolve around what I've done. They don't revolve around what you think of me. They revolve around Christ. They revolve around what Christ has done. And that the main thing is that I've been found in him. That I'm drawing identity from him. Now, for some of you, you still have hope. You still have hope that somehow the judgment you have of yourself will be enough. Or the judgment that other people would have of you would be enough. I pastored for some years um, in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, which no one's ever heard of. It's about 45 minutes due east of Pittsburgh. And in the main drag, small town, county seat, 35,000 people. On the main drag, where the little shops always are in the little town, There was a shop with an honest sign, with an honest name. It was a, I grew up Jewish in New York. What, you can't hear the accent? It was a tchotchka shop. And the name of the shop was Never Enough. A shop with a true name. But isn't that everywhere? It's never enough. Now, if you still have hope in what you think of yourself or what other people think of you, to hear what I'm saying this morning isn't very reassuring to your self-esteem. It's not to mine. There's things that I'd like to receive the judgment from people that, well, that was a great sermon. Please don't say that. It's the most corrosive thing to a pastor's heart. He doesn't need that. I don't need that. Most of us would like to be known for something, to build an identity around something. Now, I said I'd come back to this phrase, working for an identity. And I want to contrast that. Some years ago, I want to contrast that with something else that I'll call receiving an identity. Some years ago, God helped clarify for me the difference between working for an identity and receiving an identity. Here's what working for an identity looks like. It looks like what Alexander Hamilton did with his whole life. It means that somehow all that I am doing, all that I am about, is somehow trying to get a verdict in the court of humans that I'm okay. That's working for an identity. It's what Hamilton did with his whole life. You know what it does? It puts me on a treadmill, a performance treadmill. It puts those around me on a treadmill Because somehow they have to affirm the judgment that I have of myself. Or I have to receive from them what I don't find in myself. And so I seek it out. (laughs) Come to me with your good judgment of me. Hair, clothes, performance. There's numerous ways to work for an identity. It's what most humans are doing most of the time. And it's death. It leads to untold stress, fear, anxiety, worry, and lots of other sins, as Alexander Hamilton found out. What's that contrasted with? What if what the gospel says to me is that if I simply receive with an open hand by faith what God grants me for Christ's sake, that I receive an identity? a stable sense of self that is fixed, unmoving, unchanging, because the verdict has already been rendered. Court's already out of session. The judgment has already been acquitted and righteous, for Christ's sake. Friends, that's the stable place, and it makes life vastly simpler if I will simply choose day by day to receive an identity, child of God. Child of God, adopted in love. Those are the words you need to speak over yourself, not those crappy ones from the beginning of the sermon. Those words. Can you wake up in the morning? This is a great exercise, by the way. Wake up in the morning, flip over on your back, and begin to pray. And say, Father, I believe that I am loved by you. Can you say that? Honestly? Really? Truly? That you are loved by God. And that that is the word that you speak over your day. That I'm received for Christ's sake. That I'm righteous in your sight. That you have a name for me. You relate to me like that. That's a beautiful life, friends. The reason I had us read the end of chapter 3 you look at that in your order of worship. Look at verse 21. So let no one boast in men. That's what they were doing, right? I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. We're boasting in men, trying to get an identity, drafting off an identity like NASCAR's do, right? Drafting off an identity. If I'm identified with this person, then I have an identity through them vicariously. So let no one boast in men. Well, how is it possible that you don't do that? that you don't end up back in the human court of judgment, yours or others. And Paul says, say it with me out loud, for all things... Oh, come on. I said say it out loud. Try it again. Look at the text. You ready? Okay. All right. You ready? Okay. For all things are yours. Now, what if over every day, you said to yourself, regarding identity... All things are already mine. They're already mine. I already have it. I don't have to find it in myself or suck it out of other people. I've already got it. That's what Paul says. He says, all things are already yours. All that you want in terms of identity, it's already yours by virtue of being united by faith to Christ. It's kind of like working your whole life the inverse of this is kind of like working your whole life to have enough funds to retire only to discover that when you check your balance that you were already a billionaire. You worked the whole time, but you didn't need to. That's what Paul's saying. But of course, we're talking about something vastly more important than money. We're talking about it having a stable sense of self so that you're not canvassing about internally or externally for it. Now, why is this great? You're free. You're free. Imagine a life where you aren't consumed by self-justifying thoughts, inward pep talks to maintain a sense of self-respect, or seeking out what others think of you. Imagine a life like that. When that chatter diminishes because of an act of Faith in Christ that frees you to follow God, to follow his commands. A free people. Free people make a great church. God's design in sending his son for us is freedom. It's for freedom he's won us by the work of his son in our place. What do you hear when you come to this table? Do you hear your father say, don't you see here my heart for you? That I'm for you. That freedom is my design for you. Do you hear your father say, can't you see that this is why I sent my son to be broken and his blood poured out? So you could be free in him. Won't you embrace that kind of freedom? Freedom that comes from having a firm identity in Christ. Won't you enjoy God for giving that to you freely because of Christ? Won't you? Won't you feel the freedom of identity in Christ? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you love us despite us. That that's precisely what we need. That you see our plight and you answer our need. And you do it in the most incredible way, the most difficult way, the most costly way to demonstrate your love towards us. You give up your only son, that we might be found in him. And having been found in him, being loved, that we would walk free. Oh, would you grant this to us? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.